Chapter Five of Mental Efficiency. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Mental Efficiency and Other Hints to Men and Women by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Five. Marriage. The duty of it. Every now and then, it becomes necessary to deal faithfully with that immortal type of person. The praiser of the past at the expense of the present. I will not quote Horace, as by all the traditions of letters I ought to do, because Horace, like the incurable trimmer that he was, hedged on this question, and I do not admire him much either. The praiser of the past has been very rife lately. He has told us that pauperism and lunacy are mightily increasing. And though the exact opposite has been proved to be the case, and he has apologised, he will have forgotten the correction in a few months, and will break out again into renewed lamentation. He has told us that we are physically deteriorating, and in such awful tones that we have shuddered, and many of us have believed. And considering that the death rate is decreasing, that slums are decreasing. That disease is decreasing, that the agricultural labourer eats more than ever he did, our credence does not do much credit to our reasoning powers, does it? Of course, there is that terrible influx into the towns, but I, for one, should be much interested to know wherein the existence of the rustic in times past was healthier than the existence of the town dwellers of today. The personal appearance of agricultural veterans does not help me; they resemble starved bus drivers twisted out of shape by lightning. But the piece de resistance of the praiser of the past is now marriage, with discreet hints about the birth rate. The praiser of the past is going to have a magnificent time with the subject of marriage. The first moanings of the tempest have already been heard. Bishops have looked askance at the birth rate, and have mentioned their displeasure. The matter is serious, as the phrase goes. It strikes at the root. We are marrying later, my friends. Some of us, in the hurry and preoccupation of business, are quite forgetting to marry. It is the duty of the citizen to marry and have children, and we are neglecting our duty. We are growing selfish. No longer are produced the glorious quiverfuls of old times. Our fathers married at twenty. We marry at thirty-five. Why? Because a gross and enervating luxury has overtaken us. What will become of England if this continues? There will be no England. Hence, we must look to it, and so on in the same strain. I should like to ask all those who have raised and will raise such outcries: Have you read X? Now, the book that I refer to as X is a mysterious work, written rather more than a hundred years ago by an English curate. It is a classic of English science. Indeed, it is one of the great scientific books of the world. It has immensely influenced all the scientific thought of the nineteenth century, especially Darwin's. Mister H. G. Wells, 
as cited in Chambers' Cyclopedia of English Literature, describes it as the most shattering book that ever has or will be written. If I may make a personal reference, I would say that it affected me more deeply than any other scientific book that I have read. Although it is perfectly easy to understand, and free from the slightest technicality, it is the most misunderstood book in English literature, simply because it is not read. The current notion about it is utterly false. It might be a powerful instrument of education, general and sociological, but publishers will not reprint it, at least they do not, and yet it is forty times more interesting and four hundred times more educational than Gilbert White's remarks on the birds of Selborne. I will leave you to guess what X is, but I do not offer a prize for the solution of a problem which a vast number of my readers will certainly solve at once. If those who are worrying themselves about the change in our system of marriage would read X, they would probably cease from worrying, for they would perceive that they had been putting the cart before the horse, that they had elevated to the dignity of fundamental principles certain average rules of conduct which had sprung solely from certain average instincts in certain average conditions, and that they were now frightened because, the conditions having changed, the rules of conduct had changed with them. One of the truths that X makes clear is that conduct conforms to conditions and not conditions to conduct. The payment of taxes is a duty which the citizen owes to the state. Marriage, with the begetting of children, is not a duty which the citizen owes to the state. Marriage, with its consequences, is a matter of personal inclination and convenience. It never has been anything else, and it never will be anything else. How could it be otherwise? If a man goes against inclination and convenience in a matter where inclination is of the essence of the contract, he merely presents the state with a discontented citizen, if not two, in exchange for a contented one. The happiness of the state is the sum of the happiness of all its citizens. To decrease one's own happiness, then, is a singular way of doing one's duty to the state. Do you imagine that when people married early and much, they did so from a sense of duty to the state? A sense of duty which our modern luxury has weakened? I imagine they married simply because it suited them. They married from sheer selfishness, as all decent people do marry. And do those who clatter about the duty of marriage kiss the girls of their hearts with an eye to the general welfare? I can fancy them saying, My angel, I love you, from a sense of duty to the state. Let us rear innumerable progeny from a sense of duty to the state. How charmed the girls would be! If the marrying age changes, if the birth-rate shows a sympathetic tendency to follow the death-rate, as it must, see X, no one need be alarmed. 
elementary principles of right and wrong are not trembling on their bases. The human conscience is not silenced. The nation is not going to the dogs. Conduct is adjusting itself to new conditions, and that is all. We may not be able to see exactly how conditions are changing. That is a detail. Our descendants will see exactly. Meanwhile, the change in our conduct affords us some clue. And although certain nervous persons do get alarmed, and do preach, and do take measures, the rest of us may remain placid in the sure faith that measures will avail nothing whatever. If there are two things set high above legislation, movements, crusades, and preaching, one is the marrying age, and the other is the birth rate. For there the supreme instinct comes along and stamps ruthlessly on all insincere reasonings and sham altruisms, stamps on everything, in fact, and blandly remarks, I shall suit my own convenience, and no one but nature herself, with a big, big N, shall talk to me. Don't pester me with right and wrong. I am right and wrong. Having thus attempted to clear the ground a little of fudge, I propose next to offer a few simple remarks on marriage. THE ADVENTURE OF IT Having endeavoured to show that men do not and should not marry from a sense of duty to the state or to mankind, but simply and solely from an egoistic inclination to marry, I now proceed to the individual case of the man who is in a position to marry, and whose affections are not employed. Of course, if he has fallen in love, unless he happens to be a person of extremely powerful will, he will not weigh the pros and cons of marriage, he will merely marry, and forty thousand cons will not prevent him. And he will be absolutely right and justified, just as the straw, as it rushes down the current, is absolutely right and justified. But the privilege of falling in love is not given to everybody, and the inestimable privilege of falling deeply in love is given to few. However, the man whom circumstances permit to marry, but who is not in love, or is only slightly amorous, will still think of marriage. How will he think of it? I will tell you. In the first place, if he has reached the age of thirty unscathed by Aphrodite, he will reflect that that peculiar feeling of romantic expectation with which he gets up every morning would cease to exist after marriage, and it is a highly agreeable feeling. In its stead, in moments of depression, he would have the feeling of having done something irremediable, of having definitely closed an avenue for the outlet of his individuality. Kindly remember that I am not describing what this human man ought to think. I am describing what he does think. In the second place, he will reflect that, after marriage, he could no longer expect the charming welcomes which bachelors so often receive from women. He would be done with as a possibility, 
and he does not relish the prospect of being done with as a possibility. Such considerations, all connected more or less with the loss of freedom, oh, mysterious and thrilling word, will affect his theoretical attitude. And be it known that even the freedom to be lonely and melancholy is still freedom. Other ideas will suggest themselves. One morning, while brushing his hair, he will see a grey hair, and however young he may be, the anticipation of old age will come to him. A solitary old age. A senility dependent for its social and domestic requirements on condescending nephews and nieces, or even more distant relations. Awful! Unthinkable! And his first movement, especially if he has read that terrible novel, Fort comme la mort, of de Maupassant, is to rush out into the street and propose to the first girl he encounters, in order to avoid this dreadful nightmare of a solitary old age. But before he has got as far as the doorstep, he reflects further. Suppose he marries, and after twenty years his wife dies, and leaves him a widower. He will still have a solitary old age, and a vastly more tragical one than if he had remained single. Marriage is not, therefore, a sure remedy for a solitary old age. It may intensify the evil. Children? But suppose he doesn't have any children. Suppose, there being children, they die. What anguish! Suppose merely that they are seriously ill and recover. What an ageing experience! Suppose they prove a disappointment. What endless regret! Suppose they turn out badly. Children do. What shame! Suppose he finally becomes dependent upon the grudging kindness of an ungrateful child. What a supreme humiliation! All these things are occurring constantly everywhere. Suppose his wife, having loved him, ceased to love him. Or suppose he ceased to love his wife. Ces choses ne se commandent pas. These things do not command themselves. Personally, I should estimate that in not one percent even of romantic marriages are the husband and wife capable of passion for each other after three years. So brief is the violence of love. In perhaps thirty-three percent, passion settles down into a tranquil affection, which is ideal. In fifty percent it sinks into sheer indifference, and one becomes used to one's wife or one's husband as to one's other habits. And in the remaining sixteen percent it develops into dislike or detestation. Do you think my percentages are wrong, you who have been married a long time and know what the world is? Well, you may modify them a little. You won't want to modify them much. The risk of finding oneself ultimately among the sixteen percent can be avoided by the simple expedient of not marrying. And by the same expedient, the other risks can be avoided, 
together with yet others that I have not mentioned. It is entirely obvious, then, in fact I beg pardon for mentioning it, that the attitude towards marriage of the heart-free bachelor must be at best a highly cautious attitude. He knows he is already in the frying-pan, none knows better, but considering the propinquity of the fire, he doubts whether he had not better stay where he is. His life will be calmer, more like that of a hibernating snake. His sensibilities will be dulled, but the chances of poignant suffering will be very materially reduced. So that the bachelor in a position to marry, but not in love, will assuredly decide in theory against marriage. That is to say, if he is timid, if he prefers frying-pans, if he is lacking in initiative, if he has the soul of a rat, if he wants to live as little as possible, if he hates his kind, if his egoism is of the miserable sort that dares not mingle with another's. But if he has been more happily gifted, he will decide that the magnificent adventure is worth plunging into. The ineradicable and fine gambling instinct in him will urge him to take, at the first chance, a ticket in the only lottery permitted by the British government. Because, after all, the mutual sense of ownership felt by the normal husband and the normal wife is something unique, something the like of which cannot be obtained without marriage. I saw a man and a woman at a sale the other day. I was too far off to hear them, but I could perceive they were having a most lively argument. Perhaps it was only about initials on pillowcases. They were absorbed in themselves. The world did not exist for them. And I thought, what miraculous, exquisite force is it that brings together that strange, sombre, laconic organism in a silk hat and a loose black overcoat, and that strange, bright, vivacious, querulous, irrational organism in brilliant fur and feathers? And when they moved away, the most interesting phenomenon in the universe moved away. And I thought, just as no beer is bad, but some beer is better than other beer, so no marriage is bad. The chief reward of marriage is something which marriage is bound to give, companionship whose mysterious interestingness nothing can stale. A man may hate his wife so that she can't thread a needle without annoying him, but when he dies or she dies, he will say, Well, I was interested. And one always is. Said a bachelor of forty-six to me the other night, Anything is better than the void. The Two Ways of It Sabine and other summary methods of marrying being now abandoned by all nice people, there remain two broad general ways. The first is the English way. We let nature take her course. We give heed to the heart's cry. When, amid the hazards and accidents of the world, two souls find each other, 
we rejoice. Our instinctive wish is that they shall marry, if the matter can anyhow be arranged. We frankly recognise the claim of romance in life, and we are prepared to make sacrifices to it. We see a young couple at the altar. They are in love. Good! They are poor. So much the worse. But nevertheless, we feel that love will pull them through. The revolting French system of bargain and barter is the one thing that we can neither comprehend nor pardon in the customs of our great neighbours. We endeavour to be polite about that system. We simply cannot. It shocks our finest, tenderest feelings. It is so obviously contrary to nature. The second is the French way, just alluded to as bargain and barter. Now, if there is one thing a Frenchman can neither comprehend nor pardon in the customs of a race so marvellously practical and sagacious as ourselves, it is the English marriage system. He endeavours to be polite about it, and he succeeds. But it shocks his finest, tenderest feelings. He admits that it is in accordance with nature, but he is apt to argue that the whole progress of civilization has been the result of an effort to get away from nature. What? Leave the most important relation into which a man can enter to the mercy of chance, when a mere gesture may arouse passion, or the colour of a corsage induce desire. No, you English, you who are so self-controlled, you are not going seriously to defend that. You talk of love as though it lasted for ever. You talk of sacrificing to love. But what you really sacrifice, or risk sacrificing, is the whole of the latter part of married existence, for the sake of the first two or three years. Marriage is not one long honeymoon. We wish it were. When you agree to a marriage, you fix your eyes on the honeymoon. When we agree to a marriage, we try to see it as it will be five or ten years hence. We assert that in the average instance, five years after the wedding, it doesn't matter whether or not the parties were in love on the wedding day. Hence we will not yield to the gusts of the moment. Your system is, moreover, if we may be permitted the observation, a premium on improvidence. It is, to some extent, the result of improvidence. You can marry your daughters without dowries, and the ability to do so tempts you to neglect your plain duty to your daughters, and you do not always resist the temptation. Do your marriages of romance turn out better than our marriages of prudence, of careful thought, of long foresight? We do not think they do. So much for the two ways. Patriotism being the last refuge of a scoundrel, according to Dr. Johnson, I have no intention of judging between them, as my heart prompts me to do, lest I should be accused of it. Nevertheless, I may hint that, while perfectly convinced by the admirable logic of the French, I am still, with the charming illogicalness of the English, in favour of romantic marriages it being, of course, understood that dowries ought to be far more plentiful than they are in England. 
if a Frenchman accuses me of being ready to risk sacrificing the whole of the latter part of married life for the sake of the first two or three years, I would unhesitatingly reply, Yes, I am ready to risk that sacrifice. I reckon the first two or three years are worth it. But then I am English, and therefore romantic by nature. Look at London, that city whose outstanding quality is its romantic quality. And look at the English women going their ways in the wonderful streets thereof. Their very eyes are full of romance. They may, they do, lack chic, but they are heroines of drama. Then look at Paris. There is little romance in the fine, right lines of Paris. Look at the Parisiennes. They are the most astounding and adorable women yet invented by nature. But they aren't romantic, you know. They don't know what romance is. They are so matter-of-fact that when you think of their matter-of-factness, it gives you a shiver in the small of your back. To return, one may view the two ways in another light. Perhaps the difference between them is, fundamentally, less a difference between the ideas of two races than a difference between the ideas of two times of life. And in France, the elderly attitude predominates. As people get on in years, even English people, they are more and more in favour of the marriage of reason as against the marriage of romance. Young people, even French people, object strongly to the theory and practice of the marriage of reason. But with them, the unique and precious ecstasy of youth is not past, whereas their elders have forgotten its savour. Which is right? No one will ever be able to decide. But neither the one system nor the other will apply itself well to all or nearly all cases. There have been thousands of romantic marriages in England of which it may be said that it would have been better had the French system been in force to prevent their existence. And equally, thousands of possible romantic marriages have been prevented in France, which, had the English system prevailed there, would have turned out excellently. The prevalence of dowries in England would not render the English system perfect, for it must be remembered that money is only one of several ingredients in the French marriage, but it would considerably improve it. However, we are not a provident race, and we are not likely to become one, so our young men must reconcile themselves to the continued absence of dowries. The reader may be excused for imagining that I am at the end of my remarks. I am not. All that precedes is a mere preliminary to what follows. I want to regard the case of the man who has given the English system a fair trial and found it futile. Thus we wait on chance in England. We wait for love to arrive. Suppose it doesn't arrive. Where is the English system then? Assume that a man in a position to marry reaches thirty-five or forty without having fallen in love. Why should he not try the French system for a change? Any marriage is better than none at all. 
Naturally, in England, he couldn't go up to the chosen fair and announce, I am not precisely in love with you, but will you marry me? He would put it differently. And she would understand. And do you think she would refuse? End of chapter 5